Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 303. Today's big Bible question, how dare the Bible tell women how to dress? Well, happy Saturday to you, dear friends. We find ourselves in a bad place right now on the COVID roller coaster, so allow me to exhort you to seek God and pray for breakthrough and deliverance. Our church, Valley Baptist Church in Salinas, California, is currently fasting and praying this week, and I would invite you to consider doing the same thing. God is on his throne, and the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective, says James 5. Now, our Bible readings today include 2 Kings 4, Psalms 117 and 118, Daniel 9, and 2 Timothy 2, which we will focus on. Now, controversial topic today, to be sure, and I sort of played up the headline in the big Bible question somewhat intentionally, as I've mentioned to you all before. The process behind the Bible reading podcast is that I first write the episode in WordPress and then use that as sort of a manuscript to build the episode on. Now, this gives us some good show notes, I guess, because the blog entries for each episode are the transcript I use for recording. There's definitely some spontaneous and extemporaneous parts of the pod, but most of it's kind of written in advance. I say that because for this year, if 300 plus episodes in, We are at over 511,000 words so far, and having just searched the BibleReadingPodcast.com page to make sure I'm not duplicating a previous episode, uh, I am a little surprised to tell you that in those 511,000 words, which is a lot, half a million plus, that I've used on this podcast, I've never typed out, at least, I don't think I've said it either, the word modesty until today. Paul has the audacity to give men some instructions in 1 Timothy 2 and also some instructions to women. Now, I point that out because I guess some people don't particularly like that the Bible has specific instructions written to women and wives and mothers, but I think we should actually balance that truth with the fact that the Bible also has specific instructions to men and husbands and fathers, as well as children and workers and bosses and Uh, Not only that, but pastors and deacons and teachers and overseers and other categories of people too, I suppose. In this passage in specific, men are told to uh, pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. That's 1 Timothy 2.8. Now, does this mean that men have a proclivity to be in conflict with each other or not to pray or to get angry? I sort of actually guess the answer to all of those questions would be yes, but I'm not sure that the specified instruction here means that women don't have a problem with prayerlessness or anger or arguing, nor do I think that it means that women are are fine to go ahead and argue and be angry as much as they want, and they don't have to pray. Instead, I think it's a specific instruction to men to be very diligent and focused on praying together and doing so in great unity. Now, the women of the church are also given instructions here, so let's go ahead and read the entire passage, and then we'll discuss Paul's commands. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. So what do you think of when I say the word modesty? Now, I suppose most people would think of, I don't know, frumpy clothing that kind of covers everything up and it isn't racy or sexy in any sort of way or whatever. Of all the times I've heard this passage taught, and honestly, there have been a lot of them, especially when I was a youth minister and heard people teaching the youth about this, the major focus in the message has been something along the lines of, Women or girls don't wear sexy clothes that make men stumble because the Bible says we should uh, be modest. That's a pretty good summation of, I don't know, 90 plus percent of the message I've heard on this passage. Now, is that a good boiled down version of what Paul is communicating here? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not actually sure it is. So let's study the grammar, definitions, etymology of the passage, and also the context of the passage to see if we can kind of get the gist specifically of what we are being commanded to do here. First, let's uh, do, I don't know, slightly uh, third grade beginning of an essay thing, and let's look at the word modesty. Merriam-Webster tells us that in the English, modesty means the quality of not being too proud or confident about yourself or your abilities. Also, propriety in dress, speech, or conduct. Propriety, as a review, means the condition of being right, appropriate, or fitting. And kind of right away there, we see a difficulty. There's quite a bit of subjectivity to the word modest. What might be considered modest or proprietous in one culture For instance, loincloths and toplessness among some of the indigenous peoples around the equator would be considered very improper and immodest among other groups. As well, we see that the definition of modesty doesn't seem to immediately address the issue of dressing provocatively or sexually, although there are certainly definitions of the word modesty that include that quality. When we go to the Greek, the Greek word that Paul uses here is the word kosmios, which is an adjective that's derived, interestingly enough, from the Greek word cosmos, which means the world. Paul, in uh, the next chapter, actually, 1 Timothy 3.2, commands bishops and overseers to be kosmion, but not in the way they dress necessarily, but like in all of the affairs of their lives. So, 1 Timothy 3.2 says, An overseer or a bishop therefore must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Cosmion there is translated respectable in that context in 
just the previous chapter, it's translated as modest. So that's interesting when you have the exact same word translated two different ways. That's It's okay because uh, a word can have a wide, what we call semantic range. It can have a, a range of meanings. But the bottom line is church leaders are told to be cosmion and women are told to dress cosmion in Paul's letter to Timothy here. And unfortunately, this is the only two places in scripture where that word is used. So we can't look at a bunch of different places to try and determine exactly how Paul intends the word to be used. Happily, however, in contrast, in our passage today, there is enough context surrounding the command that I believe we can very clearly determine pretty close to precisely what Paul is commanding. And surprisingly, I think, it doesn't seem to have a lot to do with dressing sexually. At least that's not the overall thrust of the command. So just as a review, here's the context again, verses 9 and 10. The women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, cosmion, with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. So, very interestingly, Paul seems to be commanding that Christian woman, uh, women not dress in elaborate or expensive or show-stopping clothes. That seems to be the thrust of what he's saying and commanding here. Now, again, I've heard this passage preached so many times, including to roomfuls of women who really were wearing, like, super fashionable, expansive, and, and rich clothes. And the thrust of the way I've normally heard the message interpreted or this passage inter interpreted is almost always about dressing in a way that doesn't cause men to stumble sexually. And honestly, I find that strange from this passage, not because it's not true. Men and women are called not to make each other stumble by the word um, in any way, sexually or otherwise. We're not supposed to be stumbling blocks to each other. But this passage actually seems to be more targeted at the wearing of very expensive, flashy, attention-getting, eye-catching clothes and jewelry that are expensive, super stylish, and indicative of like a lavish lifestyle. I think that this passage, therefore, challenges the idol of fashion so prominent in our culture today and commands us to not spend a lot of money on making ourselves look awesome. So, would a woman in a super revealing or skin-tight outfit run afoul of this command? I tend to believe it would because it would draw so much attention to oneself, and that dynamic seems to be the very opposite of the thrust of this passage. Surprisingly, however, I believe a woman dressed in a, I don't know, $1,000 dress with super expensive shoes and jewelry would run even more afoul of the direct meaning of this passage. And just like we mentioned earlier, in the same way that the women still should pray in the church without anger and dispute, also the men of the church should not take this passage as license to go out and buy super expensive jeans and sneakers and watches and jewelry and such. Now, you might disagree with that concept and be thinking, hey, I got a lot of money, why can't I dress nice? And the answer is that you can and should dress nicely if nice means appropriately, decently, and with propriety. But do understand, the Bible is commanding us here not to dress in a way that draws attention or trumpets that we have massive amounts of wealth or that invites envy. Again, this passage is a great challenge 
to a hair and eyebrow and makeup and fashion-obsessed culture. And it should be. We're not here being told to go around in sackcloth and ashes, but we are also disallowed from doing the opposite. We're to be servants of Christ and not like peacocks who are super obsessed with beauty and our appearance and having all eyes on us. This passage is a reminder of the things that God values. As we read a few weeks ago in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. When we as Christians avoid preening, avoid spending copious amounts of time dressing to kill and impress, and avoid spending copious amounts of money to look our absolute best and most striking, then we are essentially inviting humility in our lives and also promoting God's values of looking at the inside rather than the outside. Now, remember, I don't make the rules. I just share them. And by that, I mean, I didn't write this letter to Timothy. I didn't write this command. Paul did under the direction and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You can feel free to ignore my opinion all day long. But in this particular instance, I don't think I'm giving you my opinion on this issue, but I'm simply helping us to understand what the Word of God says grammatically and contextually. When we know what the Word of God is telling us to do, we will know what to do and we will know what not to do. And so, my friends, we will continue with 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Therefore the king of Aram said, Go, and I will send you a letter with with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. He wrote the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, Am I God? Killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Recognize that he's only picking a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Then Elisha went with him, sent him a messenger who said, Go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your skin will be restored, and you will be clean. But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was telling myself he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, My father... If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he only tells you to wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy and he was clean. Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared, 
I know that there is no God in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives in whose presence I stand, I will not accept it. Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. And Naaman responded, If not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice or any other god to any other god but the Lord. However, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Rimon to bow in worship while he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow in the temple of Rimon. When I bow in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. So he said to him, Go in peace. After Naaman had traveled a short distance from Elisha, Gehazi, the attendant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, My master has let this Aramean Naaman off lightly, but not accepting from him what he bought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and asked, Is everything all right? Gehazi said, It is all right. My master has sent me to say, I've just now discovered that two young men from the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing. But Naaman insisted, Please accept 150 pounds. He urged Gehazi and then packed 150 pounds of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. Naaman gave them to two of his attendants who carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the gifts from them and deposited them in the house. Then he dismissed the men, and they left. Gehazi came and stood by his master. Where did you go, Gehazi? Elisha asked him. He replied, Your servant didn't go anywhere, and my heart didn't go. When the man got down from his chariot to meet you, Elisha said, Is this a time to accept silver and clothing, olive orchards and vineyards, flocks and herds, and male and female slaves? Therefore, Naaman's skin disease will cling to you and to your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from his presence diseased, resembling snow. Psalm chapter 117 verse 1. Praise the Lord all nations. Glorify him all peoples for his faithful love to us is great. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Hallelujah. Psalm 118, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let Israel say his faithful love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his faithful love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his faithful love endures forever. I called to the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and put me in a spacious place. The Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? The Lord is my helper, therefore I will look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humanity. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in nobles. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished like a fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They pushed me hard to make me fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. There are shouts of joy and victory in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. The Lord's right hand is raised. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. I will not die, but I will live and proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord disciplined me severely, but did not give me over to death. Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. 
The righteous will enter through it. I will give thanks to you because you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is my God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Amen. Daniel chapter 9 verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hazarus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be seventy. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned. We have done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, ancestors, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, in all the countries where you have banished them because of their disloyalty they showed you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done. But we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is to this day, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because uh, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before the Lord God concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, 
I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times after those sixty-two weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Lord, have mercy and give us wisdom. Good day to you, friends. May it be a blessed Saturday. Godspeed.